Well, they told us that we've got to be more serious when we do these ad reads, Tony. Yeah, they've given us their money. They've given us their time to read their ads, and the jokes just aren't cutting. No more jokes. No more No more laughs. No more of the, you know what, everybody? We're just kidding. Who are we kidding here? It is Monday morning. It's the start of a new week. The podcast is on. It's a new day. This is the day that the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Put your smile on. And if you're looking to buy a new home, we've got the hookup for you. This podcast is brought to you by Mike and Lisa Barber. They are licensed realtors at Jonesboro Realty Company. If you're looking to buy, sell, or rent, Mike and Lisa will work hard to help you with whatever your needs are. You this is the awesome thing about it. You are going to get two realtors for the price of one. They will both be working on your behalf to make sure you get the best deal. Call them today at 1-870-761-1000. That is the first step. That is 870-761-1000. You know what, Brian? There's nothing worse than getting you a brand new house. And inside that house, you go in, get your first night's sleep, and then you start sweating bullets. You know what? That's not the way that new house, that new dream is supposed to start. But you know what? We've got an ad for that. A lot of people say we got an app for that. We got an ad for that. We're blessed to have Anderson's Heat and Air as a sponsor of this podcast, guys. You got to call Nat today at 870-664-1967. That's Anderson's Heat and Air of Northeast Arkansas. It's here to serve you. It don't matter if you got a new construction, you're getting a fresh install. It don't matter if you need a little bit of a repair. Don't matter if they're coming out to maintain it a little bit. Guys, you spend 90% of the time at home sweating. It ain't worth it. You know what? You're freezing in the wintertime. That fireplace ain't warming up the whole house. Call Nat. He gets all that taken care of for you. That's 870-664-1967. Yeah, there's no need to be in your house sweating like you're nervous, like you just burned Christmas dinner. But you know what? If you have burned Christmas dinner, if you've burned Labor Day dinner, I don't know what holiday's coming up next, Columbus Day or something, if you burned up. Veterans Day. Veterans Day. No, I think Columbus Day is before that. Is it? I don't know. It's one or the other. But anyway, whatever holiday's coming up, whatever you've got going on if you forgot it in the oven you left the toaster running or the microwave i don't know what you do but if dinner's been ruined we got an answer for you if you're in northeast arkansas at 2230 south caraway road we've got lazari italian oven tony hold on let let me interject here right quick brian you're associated with this restaurant your wife is a manager there a long time ago when we first met you were a waiter there but you know what i got my favorites too you always give these suggestions let me give my suggestion Walk in there and get you a 24. It's a nice, thick noodle pasta. Comes with a grilled chicken breast, some white sauce. <clears throat> Do yourself a favor, though. Get some bacon and broccoli put on top of that. You know what? And get, Tell them to give you the, the Crucial Conversation special. Get that, get that little side salad with the extra croutons on it. Get some sweet tea. Two or three orders of that bread. You know what? Tell them the conversation sent you when you all go in there. Hey, don't you ever cut my ad read off again. only thing we're cutting out around here is those bad parking lots. Seal it up in corporation. Tony, let me know about it. Guys, we've told you this the last four weeks in a row, but I'm glad you're still here listening to it. Uh, Seal it up is locally owned and operated by Craig O'Brien. Craig O'Brien is so cool with his company. You know what he does? He doesn't stay in Northeast Arkansas. He travels. It don't matter where you're at. He takes care of your parking lot. It don't matter if your asphalt needs to be repaired. don't matter if it needs to be laid. He does a fresh seal coat, line striping. He does it all. It don't matter if you got handicapped parking spots. It don't matter if you got potholes. He takes care of it all. It does not matter. It don't matter if it's a driveway. It don't matter if it's a parking lot. It doesn't matter what it is. 
Brian, we've talked about it before. Know what's better than getting money back? Nothing. Craig does that. It don't matter if you're a church or a nonprofit. You're getting some money back with a donation. You know why? Because Craig O'Brien likes to take care of you. Give him a call today at 870-897-4787. Hey, look, and listen to me. I know you're thinking, hey, my parking lot ain't that bad. Are you kidding me? Have you gone out there and seen that thing lately? Why don't you give a call, give Craig a call today? And if it ain't that bad, then he'll walk out there and he'll say, you know, there's really nothing for me to do there. But I guarantee you there's a crack that needs to be sealed. That thing needs to be made look nice. It needs to be blacker than the night sky. And Go you know ahead. what? Your house is your biggest investment. Why you got to make it look run down? Take care of the little things. Make it look real great. 870-897-4787. He's here to make your driveway look great again. This podcast we're about to play for everybody was with Rick Lovell. Rick Lovell is an incredible wealth of wisdom. We started the podcast kind of wanting to talk about finances but it kind of morphed in that conversation. It kind of got into the finances, right. but let's let's not ruin it this time. Enjoy this crucial conversation. Oh, I like that. You have to be intentional. And if you know that people have a negative mindset about you because of other people, well you have a responsibility to change that. You know, you you have to do that. Hey guys, this is Brian. And I'm Tony. And you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. It was in 2010, I believe, that I was at senior camp and Tony Whenever I was growing up, I always thought the day session speakers were pretty boring yeah. because I had stayed up all night at camp. And so there was a year I decided I was going to skip because I had never heard the name Rick Lovell before. And so I skipped the first service, hanging out with some friends. And then I saw a few friends that they walked out of the service and they had tears in their eyes still. And I was like, man, what happened in there? And they're like, this guy, he was no joke. Mm. It was one of the best sermons that I've ever heard. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. And so I went to the next few services on those day sessions. And it was the first time I was associated with the ministry of Rick Lovell. And, and Brother Lovell, you preached some of the most fantastic messages that I have ever heard preached in a day session at senior camp. It was the first time, Tony, I've ever seen anybody asking people, do not come to the altar until I'm done preaching. Mm. Because people were going to the altar whenever he preached the message about carrying mantles from former ministers on the day that G.A. Mangan had passed away. And so the first time that I'd heard him preach was there. And I knew, Brother Lovell, you have a very powerful ministry, a very anointed ministry. And the first time I got to meet you was here at the Pentecostals Jonesboro. I uh, walked up to you and said, hey, I'm Brian. And you said to me, oh, you're Brian. And I, I, don't, I know it's something small, but I was like, man, this guy that I have known of for however many years somehow knew who I was, and that made a big impression on me. And so I'm honored to welcome you to the Crucial Conversation today, and I'm thankful to get to sit down with you and get to pick your brain a little bit and uh, get to know you a little bit better. We're thrilled to have uh, Brother Rick Lovell on the podcast. How are you doing today? Man, I am absolutely thrilled to be here. And i got to tell you, that 2010 week 
uh, yeah, mind blowing. Um, what I heard from people after that, I, I know of nine people that went on mission trips because of the second session, right. which was the, the go mad, go make a difference message. Mm-hmm. Um, I know of at least three, maybe four that have contacted me that said they got their call to preach in, during the mantle message, Ryan LaRue being mm-hmm. one of them. Wow. Um, two people in the one you skipped. Um, <laughs> the Valley of Decision. Valley of Decision. I, I do know what you preached. I had to get yeah. it from a second, uh, um, second hand. So in part of that one, I deal with suicide. And there was two preacher's kids who come up to me in the altar area, both of them just crying. One of them, he had tried three times between – he was driving from Little Rock to Redfield three times. He tried to swerve over the median – to go head into a vehicle to kill himself. Mm. And he said, literally, the steering wheel would not move. And he pulled into the parking lot and walked into that service. Wow. Oh, my word. See, here's we <laughs> talked with this about Zane Isaacson. After you have an event like that, how could you ever question oh. what your purpose that God has for your life? I'm telling you, it's, it's unbelievable. I, I, I got to tell the second one. The second PK was a lady, young lady. I'd known her, knew her parents you know, years, actually sat on the youth committee with her dad. Um, she came to me crying, and she said, Brother Lovell, I, I got the Holy Ghost today. And I'm thinking, okay, I, I guess I thought you always had the Holy Ghost. She said, when I was eight years old, someone told me that I got saved. And she said, I knew I didn't. But I've had to fake it from eight to 16. Wow. That's what we talked about, Brian. <laughs> that is insane. Dude, she actually, she said, I literally got saved today. She says, because for the last two months, I've been trying to kill myself. Mm. And that message, I mean, moments like that, that just define so much. I mean, I'm, I'm just so honored that to have those moments and to yeah. hear the feedback. You know, And, and the thing is, that the two things I get from just hearing you tell that is number one, you never know what the service you're going to could mean to you. Absolutely. Like with me, uh, what if I was going through that and I chose to skip that message and I would have missed that word? Mm. And so you never know what God has in store for you at church, the services. You're like, well, I'm just going to take it easy today. Or as you think you know or you can kind of stereotype what the preacher is going to be like, then you decide to miss out. You don't know what God has in store for you. Mm-hmm. And the other perspective is you never know as the minister who's in that congregation. That's right. You and what know. people are going through. And that's kind of even in a way, that's kind of what we've experienced here in the podcast is hearing some people give us feedback of things we've talked about that you just never knew, Mm -hmm. that people have gone through some of the things and how it's connected with people. God is really good about lining things up. (laughs) If we'll stay aligned, we'll always be in line for somebody's moment of destiny. To to speak, like the Bible talks about, speak a word in a season. Mm -hmm. You you don't know what that's going to be, but it's cool when it happens. and you You know you can be a part of it. It's very humbling. Well, I'm getting very excited to hear a little bit about who you are. As we're sitting here talking to you, you've got something in your right hand that you keep <laughs> playing with. Tell us a little bit about your, your journey that you're on right now uh, as well, a fisherman. Well, you know, when Jesus went looking for, you know, apostles and disciples, he clearly went to the fishing boats. Mm-hmm. The only meal Jesus ever blessed was a fish meal. The only meal Jesus ever cooked in the Bible was a fish meal. So I'm thinking, you know, as good as we can be at fishing, let's let's develop that. It's got to teach us something. 
So, yeah, I love to bass fish. Um, several years ago, I, I tried to do uh, – I tried to be a golfer, and I got tired of having to repent after every round. <laughs> uh, got tired of replacing clubs I'd throw or break. Um, so I picked up bass rod, and, yeah, I have a, a, a Spro Bronze Eye Frog in my hand here. Um, I know you guys like to fish, so I brought it just for mm-hmm. conversation. But, um, yeah, I've got to, you know, have rod will travel. Tell me about the excursions you're going on. What do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? I got you. So several years ago, I, I created a bucket list that it was pretty simple. I just want to catch a fish in a hundred different bodies of water. And you'd be surprised that, I mean, it's not that easy for a lot of people. Because especially if you don't travel, you know, you'll, you'll exhaust everything around you. You know, every creek, every ditch, every pond, whatever you can get to. So, yeah, I travel. You know, you know I, I either have a uh, – I've got a little short um, collapsible rod that I carry with me, take it on planes uh, anywhere <laughs> I go, you know, stop along the road. Try to catch something. You caught, always get my license. Let's clarify that. I always go. make it legal. You you caught a, a huge fish not too long ago. You put it on Facebook. What's the biggest fish you've caught? Um, my largest fish is 28 pounds. What was it? Uh, that was a big catfish. <sighs> but, um, yeah, that was pretty incredible. That was on the Mississippi River. Um, I've done that. Um, my next biggest one would be an 18-pound striper, which is not that big of a striper, but that's on Norfolk Lake, North Arkansas. And I bet you There's that some gave monsters. a huge fight. Oh, it's 10 minutes getting it in. Yeah, it's it's awesome stuff. Let me tell you a story real quick. Do it. Uh, me and Tony went fishing at a place not too far from where we're, where we're actually going to church right now. And uh, Tony's casting out, and he looks over at me. And we've got a guy with us that's there to take pictures of the fish we we catch so he could put it on, like, commercial promos. And so Tony turns and looks at me. He haven't caught a fish all day. And Tony looks at me, and he goes, hey, Brian, you want me to catch a, ki- catch a fish on this cast? I said, yeah, I do. He flew out there, and he caught the well that swallowed Jonah. <laughs> I mean, he threw it out there, and as soon as it hit the water, he that thump, he was like, <laughs> yeah. and he pulled back on it. And I'm looking out there, and I'm thinking he's joking with me. And then all of a sudden, I see it come out of the water, and I'm being, it's a hog. I mean, it is a ginormous <laughs> largemouth bass, and I'm just in all. I'm getting mad, and I'm just casting and reeling back in as fast <laughs> as I can while he's struggling. Yeah. And he whittles it up to the to the boat, and we're in some kind of thick grass, and he's yelling, like, "Brian, bring the needle nose pliers." Well, I caught a fish, and I'm like, "No, I'm catching my own fish." And he was like a it's little a minnow. Half, oh my pa- word! Half pa- his could have swallowed mine plus its mother. <laughs> That's and then, hilarious. And so I, I get the needle nose and I unhook it, and so I'm like, "Okay," and I'm walking over to him, and he's like, "Dude, hurry up, hurry up!" And he's got it hooked, treble hooks, both sides, sides of his mouth. It went and, long way. And so I reach nice. down and I get the pliers and I pop off one side, and get my hand in his mouth. I pop off the other side, and I go to lift it up. And when I lift it up, I feel that weight, and I'm just I'm I'm irritated that he caught this fish. <laughs> it flops in my hand, and I drop it in the no. water into the water. I, I, I stomp my foot Way. down on a log that is in between the like the deep end and the. the you lost his fish. It, it fell in the shallow. Now listen, now so I put my foot down. <laughs> I put my fa- foot down to keep it from getting in the deep end, and I reach down and I grab its mouth again, and I'm lifting it up, and it flops again and jumps over the log, and it is gone. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and I can't get it. Because because I got both hands trying to pull that reel because it's got to be 100 pounds. It's my story. Well, yeah. It's got to be 100 pounds. At least a double digit. It, it, it was at least 11. I, it oh, had to have been. my goodness. And so I go, Brad, please tell me you got a picture. And he said, you guys are in too thick of grass. I couldn't get a clean oh, shot. Oh, my goodness. So he never got a picture. The one He never that got, got to hold it. He got nothing. 
Oh, that makes me sick. And he, That's awesome. He was like, all right, we're leaving right now. That is awesome. So yeah. my dad's down here at the end of the table, mm-hmm. and he's got a story about bass fishing. You caught how big was it? Ten pounds, nice. eight ounces. And he, I said, that had to give you a huge fight. He said, nope, rolled over and floated to the top. It's almost aggravating. It is. It's April. <laughs> Wind out of the north. Yeah. You know, Perfect conditions. You know. oh, Got to be terrible. It's the worst feeling in the world, but. It was on his wall, though. He, he, he's well, got hey, it in his wall, you, we got it in the At least you water. had a witness that you have caught. Yeah, and at least Brian talks a little yeah. evangelistic like I do about it. <laughs> <laughs> it may not have been yeah. as big as I'm saying it is. But, but it was a hog. It was That's a hog. crazy. It was big. All right, so let's get a little bit deep here, Brother Lovell. Have you been in church your whole life? Born and raised. Born and raised. So at what point in your uh, walk with God, did you realize that you were called into ministry? Uh, I was about four. Four years old. How did you accept that at four years old? Well, when you baptize Winnie the Pooh and all your G.I. Joe men 14 times. A couple you know, of cats. Yeah. Um, I, I've never had a moment where it was like, that was the call. I've heard guys tell their stories. I've never had that. Literally grew up my whole life knowing I would preach. Was it because your family was in the ministry? Nope. Uh, my dad was the um, song leader. Uh, my mom was the church piano player and and secretary of the church. I mean, I grew up in a household that was, you know, the core people of the church. Yeah, saints. Um, that was my life. You know, I... Um, it's funny when we actually had another conversation with another group this morning about this that it's there's guys who they don't ever have that moment where it's like you know the saith the lord <laughs> you know they don't have that and so you almost feel like well maybe I wasn't called to preach but yet literally I've been I mean as early as I can remember I have a bible that I've had since I was about 7 years old I've got preaching notes in there you know it's just always been there and I've always known it was going to happen so you never struggled with being called to preach? No, 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 no. Um, I can tell you a couple moments I had where it became, I'll just say more real. Um, I went, my, my parents and I, we went to this, uh, like a community festival kind of a deal. And um, there was, I was probably, I don't know, 16, 15, somewhere in there. I'm trying to remember. I was about 15, I guess. And, you know, typical 15-year-old guy. You know, this, there was another family walking toward us. The daughter was obviously catching my attention. You know, you're 15, pretty girl walking toward you. And I heard the voice of the Lord say, but she's going to hell. Whoa. <laughs> like, you talk about shocking you. All of a sudden, she wasn't pretty anymore. You know, it wasn't like that wasn't my train of thought. And it was just a, a blip moment, and I just busted out crying. I'm walking there on the street, and I'm fighting tears. I'm like, stop it. You know, I don't want my mom and dad to see me. I didn't know what was going on. That was in October. November, my mom uh, took me to Washington, D.C., and just to tour it. And we went to Baltimore one night, Inner Harbor, and we're going along the street there, and there was two young men that had baseball bats that were smashing uh, construction barrels. And just being, you know, mean or whatever. And our driver made some, you know, very disrespectful comment about them. And I heard that same voice say, and they're going to hell too. And I stopped and I went, why? And it was because nobody's telling them about Jesus. 
And it was like all of a sudden in that moment, I literally in my mind went all the way back to play in church, you know, in my in my bedroom to where it was, okay, you can't play anymore. It's got to get real. Um, How old were you at this point? That was it was ninth grade, so 14, 15, I guess it was. Um, now, I, I can't say I ever had that moment where you remember preaching your first sermon. You know, I wish I had that. I've talked to guys that they have their notes framed from their first sermon. I didn't ever have that. You know, I've just always kind of been involved. I can tell you this. Um, my first two years of college are my I, – I refer to it as my two stupid years. You know, where it wasn't that I was fighting the calling. I was straight up fighting living for God. Um, I knew what my calling was. I knew that if I wasn't in ministry, I would be the most miserable person in the world because that's why I was on this. I mean, I literally, you know, my there, and there's a long story there. Um, my mother wasn't supposed to have children. Um, she had a friend and her pastor's wife um, in Ozark, Illinois Church um, that fasted and prayed for her. Um, I ended up being born on... The one lady that fasted, I was born on her birthday, which is crazy. Wow. Um, That's cool. There was, there's a lot of crazy things that happened there. Clearly, you know, and my mom, if she was here telling the story, she'd say, well, he was my miracle baby because there wasn't supposed to be a baby. And so she knew that whatever happened in my life, it was strictly for the purpose of God. She had prayed the same prayer as Hannah. You know, God, you give me a child, I'll give it back to you, male or female. And so I've just been raised to know you're going to serve the Lord. Well, I went through that transition period, and I think everybody goes through this that's been raised in church. You go through that period of time where you have to develop your adulthood experience in God. Your childhood experience is just not cutting it anymore. You know, childhood experience, you can go to church, feel Jesus, and do good the rest of the week. You're okay. Well, at some point, you've got to have prayer life, and at some point, you've got to get disciplined, and at some point, you've got to make up in your mind what your daily purpose is going to be. Well, I wasn't doing very well with that. And, I mean, I have lots of regrets in those two years. When I say I was born and raised in church, um, some of the saddest years of my life was where I was just playing church. I'd still, I mean, I was still attended. I still played the drums. You know, I still, you know, still involved, but I was miserable because I wasn't fully committed. And it wasn't that I wasn't committed to the call. I wasn't committed to God. And so I finally, you know, it was a... um, uh, we're throwing out crazy stories. My cousin and I were catfishing one night, and we were both struggling. I was, uh, uh, we had a conversation about, you know, man, there's got to be a God. I mean, somebody put that moon up there, and something put all the stars up there. And I literally turned and looked toward the east. It, you know, we're talking about the sun coming up, and just, you know, everything works too perfect for there to not be a higher power, and surely it's our God. You know, just kind of the questions. About two weeks later, it was a Sunday night service. We're in the altar there, and it was a moment of tongues and interpretation. And I'll never forget, the first part of the interpretation was, my son, my son, I love you. Yes, I hung the moon. Yes, I hung the stars. And I make the sun come up every morning because I love my children. And I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how much that wrecked me. (laughs) You know, and my cousin came up later, and he's like, who'd you tell? (laughs) You know, it's like one of those, there's no way anybody knew that, okay? Well, I knew what happened, and that was the moment where it was like, okay, i got to get serious. There really are people going to hell. And, there re- and of course, that, those moments from my ninth grade, you know, and just I can still tell you to this day, I can still remember that girl and her family. I can still remember those two young men in Baltimore 
those faces never leave me because it, it's I saw the faces of humans that were hurting and humans that needed God. And so from that, everything since then, you know, had to be a full surrender. And then um, it was shortly after that that the Lord gave me the vision of the Valley of Decisions, which I preached that that Tuesday morning. Um, and then that kind of gave me direction for my call because that was all about youth ministry, you know, and it just kind of developed from there. But, you know, I, I just I try to tell everybody, whether you're fighting the call, you're fighting living for God, whatever, I mean, you got to make up in your mind you're going to live for God then you can successfully live out your call with whatever that is. But, I mean, there's a whole lot of people, and y'all know, and I don't know, maybe you guys have dealt with it too. There's a time period, especially growing up in church, you're just playing church. Sure. And that whole transition period, and my pastor, Fred Ruff, always talked about going from the childhood experience to the adulthood experience. And it is a transition in your life. It's You have to go through that. Well, a lot of times in that moment there, you know, if you ever work with young people and they tell you something you know, but all of a sudden, I feel like God can't hear my prayers. Where'd God go? You know, it's like, oh, I can't hear, feel God. I can't, you know, they're so used as a child being so sensitive to the Spirit that all of a sudden now they've matured, they become more of an adult, and now the sensitivity is different. And it's not that God left them, but I do think there's a moment where God says, okay, I want to make this more than a feeling. I want you to really love me. I want you to really search after me, and I'm not going to let you feel me, so to speak. We can't have a relationship built on feeling anyway. And so these young people, you know, I I encourage them, hey, get beyond needing the feeling. Get into the Word and know God. Then you're going to know more about your purpose and everything. That's what I had to do. I had to get beyond the feeling I can specifically take you back to the time, and my dad may remember this. I don't know if he will or not, but... For me, I tell Brian this story all the time. In 2004, um, I can distinctively remember going to our, our Illinois campground and hearing uh, Tim Gaddy and Todd Gaddy tag team preach, and Tim Gaddy preached on being a world changer. And like you said, my whole life growing up to then, I attended church, but it was like, you know, I just went because my parents told me mm-hmm. to go. And it wasn't until that Sunday after camp that I can take you to the exact place in the Cobden Church to the left right in front of the pulpit where I felt like God was calling me into the ministry. And I, I had opened my eyes from praying, and my pastor pointed at my dad and then pointed at me and said, you're just beginning here. And every, they came around and started praying with me. And then at the end of that that church service, um, me and my dad went into my pastor's office, and he, he said, I said, I'm called to go. I don't know where to go. And he said, son, it's the fact that you came back open. That's awesome. It's that you came back open, and so many times we, we as Christians, we don't we don't let ourselves get that vulnerable, yep. especially us men, because we can't show ourselves weak. Yep. But it's not until the time that God can start to begin to deal with us. That's so true. So, I want to ask you one other thing. Your first two years of your college was pretty rough. You said, mm-hmm. at what point did point did you realize that it was that you were being called to lead the pastor? How did you know when it was time to make that start shifting? So that's another thing where I, I can't say I was ever I've ever felt the call to pastor. I've always felt called to preach and deliver the word. Um, and I know that's different than a lot of guys say. Well, I was called to pastor. Well, my deal was I was invited to go to Sykeston to preach. They needed a pastor. Other people in my life had recognized that. You know, there was clearly a ministry ability there. I mean, I got an email at work one day from someone saying, you ever thought about pastoring? 
you know. And I mean, it's I knew it's like I knew that was coming down the road, but again, I can't tell you that you know God ever spoke to me and said, you know, <laughs> go pastor. Um, but I can tell you this: we were we were driving into Sykeston. My wife was driving I'm in the passenger seat. We come off the exit, and as we're going down the ramp, the Lord took me into a vision. And from from that moment, it's about two miles to the church. And when I came to, we were in the parking lot of the church. And in that vision, I, I, I was walking down into a valley full of sheep. And every one of the sheep, there was, there was over 100 of them, every one of these sheep was wounded, broken, busted, bleeding. It was a mess. And as I'm walking down there into them, I remember feeling overwhelmed, just this incredible sense of, oh, my goodness. And at that moment, there was an angel appeared next to me in the vision. And I, I, I said, what, what, what is this? And the angel handed me gauze wrap and like cortisol or something, some kind of a, a ointment of some kind. Uh, so I just, or neosporin, I guess. What I, I remember seeing a yellow thing on it. It was neosporin. And that's actually significant because of something else later. But anyway, I start wrapping these sheep up, putting the ointment on them. And then the angel disappears. Okay. Um, when I went into the church, I recognized that these were all wounded sheep. And it's, I'm going to get real technical here. It's not that God called me to pastor those people. God called me to bring healing to those sheep, which I did for nine years, you know, and then this pastor, we can talk about that later of how that whole transition happened. But the level of healing that we we watched there was just incredible. Um, it, yes, I was the pastor. Yes, that's the title. But it's more of a ministry of healing and growth and development and, and getting that flock of sheep healthy. That's what it was really all about. Um, yeah, that's... <laughs> so tell us, uh, how was the Neosporin significant later on? Um I kept a, a, a thing of Neosporin in my bathroom just as a constant reminder of why I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, That's awesome. There's going to be times in your ministry, if you have a specific calling to do a certain thing, I don't care what it is, there's going to be times where doubt's going to come in. There's going to be times where the journey is going to get so long, you know, and we like fast results. That it's like you're not really seeing a lot develop. You're not really seeing a lot happen. And you start questioning. You need something to always remind you. And, I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a divine principle. I mean, it was the whole Joshua, you know, go get those stones, set them up. Because somebody down the road is going to ask, now, why are we here? <laughs> and you're going to be able to say, well, look what God's done. And I always needed that, that reminder. And, you know, almost every time I laid eyes on that thing of Neosporin, I, it was like a that's that memory of, of this is why I'm here. So you told us a little bit about um, your first your two years in college, and then whenever you were, you got that vision of pulling onto the church barn. You got when you got that vision. What was your first year of pastoralship like after you've seen that vision? What's the <laughs> first year like? I was so overwhelmed. I mean, just I never pastored. You know, I got to be honest. The church in Mountain Home that I grew up in. One of the healthiest churches, incredible pastor. I mean, I, I had never, other than work, I had never really been. A, I'd never been around anybody that had been spiritually abused. You know, I I dealt with people that had you know physical abuse, stuff like that, but not 
This gotta, this mowing we, is we, awesome, we, we isn't got, it? We got a guy <laughs> serving the church right now. Yeah. So. God bless him. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's um, pulling off our side. Thank you. <laughs> I, hey, while, while you're at, at this point real quick, I want to jump in with one thing uh, that I was wanting to mention. Uh, and I know you were, we were talking about it in your first year. When I think I've heard you tell the story before about when you went to the restaurant and you knew you had to make a change for the way that people perceive the church when, when it came to leaving behind tips. <laughs> yes. Can we please talk about that? Yes. yes. Open and then, it up. then we'll get back into talking to some of the uh, – this is one of the things that a lot of people are going to say, well, that's not really spiritual. That's kind of carnal. But it is spiritual because it leads to being a witness and making a connection with people. So I, was, I pastored in Sykeston, Missouri. If you know about Sykeston, Missouri, you know about rolls. the home of the throwed <laughs> rolls. Okay. So I had started teaching a Bible study to a lady. We, we can get into that story deeper, but this one particular lady. We will. And, and she says, man, I love this teaching. I love this, this you know, all of your stuff. I, I want to come, but my husband won't let me. I said, well, what do you mean your husband won't let you? And i got to be honest with you. I'm thinking it has more to do with our, the fact we're Pentecostal. Right. Right? And she said, well, my husband told me that I can't be Pentecostal. I'm thinking, you know, the traditional thoughts along Pentecost. And I said, well, well, why not? She says, because they're some of the worst tippers. And when they come in, a lot of them complain too much. And some of them even walk out without paying. Let me tell you what, I about went through the roof. I wanted to stand outside Lambert's with a sign and say, this is my town. You better tip them. <laughs> right. right? Um, Come to find out, they, their, their conversation had developed to the point where he finally admitted, well, it's not just Pentecostals, but they're the ones that we can tell who they are. Yeah, that's what I was going right. to say. Because I, I worked in a restaurant here in town, and uh, there was a, a table I was waiting on, and they asked me and said, hey, let me ask you, who are the worst tippers that come through here? And I said, well, who do you think would be? And the guy looked at me, and he kind of leaned back in his chair, kind of matter of fact, shook his head yes and said, Pentecostals. And I said, oh, I am one. And I turned and walked away. And dude, whenever he did, I mean, I could I could hear him slump down in his seat whenever he said it. But again, it's not so much. I don't think that Pentecostals are bad tippers. But it's like that guy said, you can tell who the Pentecostals so, are. So the incredible ending into that story is that lady is now the guest services director at the church. Her husband, the manager at Lambert's, mm-hmm. is now one of the head ushers. Oh wow, that's awesome. So how did you change it? So with, with the tips, how Hold did you on, Before it? you say that, I want to tell a real quick story about that. Is I forget who it was. Uh, you, I don't remember, but I remember somebody telling us a story about because of the times where a group of people went in and it was towards the end of their shift and they were actually in the back flipping coins saying, I don't want to go take that table yep. because, you know, I'm not going to get anything yep. out of it. Yep. So uh, we can talk about tips all day because I'm a firm believer. It, it, it's just... You can either open a door or close a door with someone based on tipping. Um, I heard Tim Getty talk about that when they launched the church there in Cabot, he focused on waitresses, people with a servant mentality. He always calls them by their first name. He does. I ate with them one time, and that was one thing I noticed. Absolutely. So I just set out to do that, okay? And I told told several people, I said, I'm going to be the pastor of Lambert's. And before we left, I'd walk in there, and I mean multiple people. And, and I'm not patting me on the, sh- you know, this is not any kind of self-accolade or anything like that. But it got to the point where those people realized, oh, wait, he really does care for us. 
and they actually wanted our church to come in then. You know, I, I can take you through several restaurants in Sykeston where the people actually watched two waitresses argue one day about who was going to serve our table because they knew we were the best tippers. Right. You know, it, it changes right. the whole paradigm of everything. Um, <laughs> there's just so many stories that could, that could come out of that, but it's one of those deals where you have to be intentional. And if you know that people have a negative mindset about you because of other people, well, you have a responsibility to change that. You know, you you have to do that. And so, yeah, there were several times, like if it's a general conference in St. Louis, and I know there's a lot of people coming through, oh, yeah, I was busting Twitter. You know, hey, y'all, don't forget. Because what had happened is a whole bunch of them folks down there was also tithing. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. If you're not tipping, they ain't tithing. Now, I'm sorry, <laughs> but we've got to make this thing work, you know. Right. And it's not about me, but it's just about – you know, you, you've got to make sure that you're representing, because everybody that walks through that door, you're representing the church in that community. And, and you show, because they don't know if you're, you know, they don't really know who you are. But when we walked in, they're associating us. So we just set out to change it, and praise the Lord we did. So I want to go back a little bit to where your first year of pastoralship, because there's a <laughs> second question that derives off of that. You, d- you said that it was your fast first pastoralship when mm-hmm. you went to Sykeston. I want to know what that was like, and I want to, want to know specifically what you wanted your congregation to know about you since you've had okay. that vision. Um, the first year was so tough, so tough. Um, the amount of pain that people had endured in their life, I guess I had never been that deep in the trenches with it, and so I was so overwhelmed. I mean, you, you walk to the pulpit, and, and it's like, there's 33,000 verses. What do you say? You know, what do you do? And so I knew I had to have a word from God every single time I walked in that pulpit. There was too much at stake. I had to have a word. And one day I was sitting in my office, and I just told the Lord, I said, Lord, I, I, I mean— I felt like I could teach anything out of this Bible. I mean, I, I know the word enough to know, pick a subject, let's go with it. But I didn't want to be that pastor. I didn't want to just randomly pick a subject and say, well, you know what, they need to learn about grace tonight. Um, I, I needed a word. And I sat down there, and it was one of those days, I mean, there was some people had made some false accusations, people that I trusted, it hurt. Um, just a whole lot going on. And I said, Lord, I have to know what to do. And I even, there's times, and I'm going to tell you guys, you got to have a candid conversation with, with Jesus at times. I mean, you just got to open it up. And I literally sat there. There wasn't none of that, you know, oh, Heavenly Father, I beseech you. No, it was like, all right, Jesus, these are your sheep. And I ain't got a clue what to say to them. you, you got to give me something, okay? And I'm sitting there, and he gave me six very specific things. I wrote them down on a little scratch piece of paper. I taped them to the inside of my desk. Said every time, and then at that point, anytime I ever needed a word, if I was, you know how it is, if you've pastored for a while or you've been in youth ministry for a while, you just kind of get, like, overwhelmed by the fact there are 33,000 verses. And what do I pull out of this deal? If I was ever curious or just couldn't quite get a bead on, on what, where to go, I'd pull that drawer open, and one of those six things would pop up. And as long as I was connected to one of those six things, then I was always connected to what the Lord was speaking to our church. Um, you know, restoring faith, uh, uh, making sure people understand the difference between grace and truth. You know, you got to have both of those things. Um, 
establishing a, I call it a followership based on love, not fear, um, build and trust, um, creating a culture of evangelism. Um, you know, evangelism can't be an event that's planned. <laughs> it has to become your culture. Um, like all of those things that I just guided off that. And as long as I did that, you know, I always knew I was, I was at least in the vein that the Lord was directing our church for. You know, and I can't give you that list and say, here, you need to do this at your church. That's right. You know, this was this list for Sykeston. Um, and so I had to guide off that because I was so overwhelmed by it. You know, I, I have a degree in banking and finance. You know, I, I knew banking. I knew the numbers side. I could administer the church. I had no issues with, you know, I, I had all that. But it was just the heaviness of the reality of the, where these people were at. You know, and it's, you know, when you got a lady that, you know, she comes to you and she tells you, uh, let me back up a little bit. First door I knocked in Sykeston. I, I, I knew uh, I knew the family's background. I didn't know the people. Um, the first time they came to church, the mom and three of the four kids all got the Holy Ghost the same service. Um, the mother, you know, you, you, you meet her now, and, and she's the administrative assistant and the, the, the prayer director of the church. What you don't know is that when, when we knocked on the door and she first came to church, her big thing was, for literally, and I got to be careful. I don't know how much she wants this on <laughs> podcast world. Um, for ten years of her life, she was abused by multiple people in her family. You know, from three to thirteen years old, you, you live a, a life of trauma. Okay, where people in your life that you thought should be the ones that you can respect were taking advantage of you. Okay, well now you step in as a pastor, and you think they're just going to trust you. When everybody else in their life that's ever been in a point of, uh, of you know, a, a leader type position has taken advantage of them, wh- where am I at in that picture? Yeah, you know, you can't just immediately say, "Well, you ought to trust me. I'm the pastor." No, you got to build that trust. You know, and it took years of, of of working with her, working with her family, and you know, now they're just it's an incredible family. You know, but it, it it's it's the process of time that grace takes. You got to give grace a chance to work. Um. And that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm so adamant about of everybody you look at. And again, it goes back to that young lady and those two young men. It, 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 did grace ever get a chance to work in their life? I can't tell you how many times I've thought about those three people. You know, I wonder where they're at right now. I wonder if grace ever became real in their life. Um, it, just that whole deal. And so now, you know, my ministry now is, is all about wherever I go and all my travels and stuff, I've got to make sure I've got a clear word from God and that grace has a chance to work because I might be the voice coming in off the street that, you know, this person that's visiting, maybe it's, it's somebody who's been out of a church for five, 10 years. They're tired of the same old messages. They're, they're tired of that. And all of a sudden there's that one voice where grace speaks in a way it never has before. Um, it's cool to see that happen, and it's cool to see people come back because they're hurt, and it goes back again to the vision of the, the wounded sheep. And when you recognize that people are not idiots, they're probably just hurt. You know, people who frustrate you a lot, that's just pain talking because hurt people hurt people. Mm. You know, uh, there's a really good book written with that title. You should read it. Um, when you recognize that, these people who frustrate you and the people who, you know, make ministry difficult, and you realize, man, they're just hurting sheep. Literally, they're not that they are hurting other sheep, but they're just sheep who are hurting. And then you just you start ministering along those lines, and 
God does incredible things when, when, when he, you're delivering his word into their moment. Uh, whenever you're ministering to people and you're sitting down with them and you're counseling them and they're talking about their hurts, in those first few years and even in all of your nine years, did you feel like it was the same? Uh, a, there was any very similar themes that people kept struggling with because the people that are out there listening, many of them probably have endured those <laughs> same kind of hurts. And so what were some of the hurts that were brought up to you and how did you give them guidance to find the healing that they are searching for? Maybe the person that's out there right now, that what they're searching for. When you start categorizing the kind of pain that it is, um, people who have been neglected, you know, they, there was, there's great neglect in their life. They weren't loved like they thought they should have been loved. Um, they eventually get to the point where they are convinced they're unlovable. Well, they build incredible walls around them, okay? You are not going to lead that person into a relationship with Jesus Christ in the first meeting. It's, it's impossible. Just move beyond that, okay? you you got to work on why they are lovable and, and, and work them through a lot of that because our brains work by association, okay? So as a child, if you've been wounded in, you name the situation, okay? Any kind of abuse or whatever, you immediately associate that if if two men in your life did this to you, then every man out here is capable of doing that to you. Or if, if your mother walked out on you and abandon you and you've never really felt the love of a mother, you cannot relate to the idea of some preacher getting up there and talking about how the church is a mother. You just, you can't, or if it's the father figure and you're talking about our heavenly father that loves us so much, how do I associate that? Okay, you've got to break that thing down for folks and help them disassociate the people that hurt them from the God you're trying to, you know, bring them into. Or you try to you have to disassociate those people from you as the right. minister. Well, I want to say something right here because Jelaine Lumpkin, we had an interview with Brother and Sister Lumpkin. Oh, and man. She, she said something so powerful. She said, yeah, a lot of people get, or excuse me, she said some people get deliverance at an altar, but that's not everybody. Some people have to get their deliverance for themselves, and they have to dif- differentiate their way, you know, uh-huh. because— it, it may not be the church that hurt them, but it's the church that's getting that's being held responsible. Man, for and it. when you start talking about church hurt, whoo, I could, yeah, um, I don't care what kind of church it is. If it's got humans in it, I don't care what the sign on the front door says. People are going to get hurt. Well, again, it's about association. When you get hurt at a church, you naturally associate church with the hurt. You don't say, you know, John Smith hurt me. You say the church hurt me. The church hurt me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's association. Well, now you get out here and you got these people coming into your church. You're trying to teach them. You're trying to love them, and, and there's just this. You can feel a resistance, and, and they're not they're not getting involved like they should. They come, they sit on the back row, and they get out as quick as they can. You know, why are they not willing to connect? Well, here's the fact of it: they want the God you're talking about. They want to be saved. They want to go to heaven. their faith in God is not what's hurt. It's their faith in the ministry and their faith in the church. You know, I, I've, I've had a lady tell me, I mean, she started telling me stories of things that had happened in various kinds of churches she had been to. And I said, you know what, I don't blame you for thinking our church is going to do the same thing. I mean, my goodness, as much as you've been through. But here's what I'm asking. Will you give us three weeks? G- give us three weeks. Give us a month. 
And if anything happens within that month that you think is on those same lines as where you've been hurt before, please bring it to my attention because I'll clean that house in a hurry. Okay? Every single person that committed to give me a month, what do you think happened with them? Still there. Still there. Wow. Because they realized I can no longer associate that person or that church with where I am today. So it's, it's about association disassociation, if that makes sense. So if there's somebody out there, and I'll just make a hypothetical person, there's a person out there that whenever they were young, they were abused by a father figure. Now they're married, and they struggle with intimacy with their <laughs> husband because of that. And not only that, but they struggle with being able to see God as the Heavenly Father. They struggle with seeing men in leadership in their life. To that person, what can they do to try and bring that emotional healing into their heart? Because they're out there and they don't want to feel bitterness against male figures in their life. How does that person begin the process of healing? So to answer that, I'm actually going to expand your scenario. Okay. Okay. Um, Maybe it's not just that male figure. Um, Any family member, any uh, whatever it is. Okay, here's, here's what generally happens that I've seen. I'm not saying this is the scientific, you know, thing for everybody. They generally deal with a feeling of dirtiness. They feel, they feel icky, okay? Well, then when you get that into a spiritual context, it's very similar to almost conviction. And so what they felt as a dirtiness in their life now becomes, it's almost like, wait, was that sin? And then they, there's so many times I've talked to people, they felt like they had to keep repenting of something that they didn't even do. It wasn't their fault. And they wonder why they don't feel like they've been forgiven. Well, it's because there's nothing to forgive. Okay? So I say, okay, let's, let's back this thing up and talk about, here's the reality of it. So many people, when they've had those experiences, because especially in the church, and it's so... Uh, you know, it's a taboo subject. We don't like to talk about those kind of things in the church house, right? Well, they don't feel that freedom of expressing it, so they internalize it, okay? But here, here's, here's what I've, I've learned. If someone else made a choice that negatively impacted you, especially when it comes to abuse, you know, whether it's sexual abuse, physical abuse, any kind of abuse like that, what I've found is that it takes someone else to get that off you, okay? That's where a, 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 a godly counselor can help you. Now, in Sykeston, I did a survey in the church one night. 21% of the people in that congregation admitted to being molested at some point in their life. I, 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 had, to, I had to see if that was just that church, so I started making some phone calls. And what I found out, that's basically the norm. Wow. That's, un- so that's unbelievable. 21%. Let me ask, just flat out ask you. How out of many 100, was about that? 160. Wow. Yeah, do, do some math on that. And then you go, that's why they're hurting so bad. That's why they're so resistant to building relationship. That's why they struggle with the whole father figure, God being the father. You know, like, that's, that's why. It, it's not because they don't have faith. They wouldn't be there if they didn't have faith. They've got faith. I don't need to build faith. We need to build healing. Okay, so in that moment right there, I'm, I'm, I'm taking them through this. I'm saying, okay, somebody else made the decision. So we all have to realize you can't ask God to forgive you for something somebody else did. 
But there are people who are trained, and especially some who are God-inspired, to lead you through the process of healing, okay? Um, there in Sykeston, I, we, we helped bring in a lady. Her name's Jennifer Fuller. Um, she's a licensed professional counselor. Um, you know, she had overcome some of her own pain in her life. And, like, the number of people that she's helped is incredible. Just because, and I'm going to say this too, my personal opinion here, I don't think the pastor should be that counselor. I, I, I got too many other things I got to worry about. That's what I was about to ask yeah. is, is whenever you bring a counselor in, does that, uh, I'm sure you've probably felt some kickback maybe some from people. Of, well, you're the pastor. Why are you not handling that? Yeah, and, I, and there were actually, uh, I know of one family that left the church because I refused to counsel at a level I knew I was not qualified to counsel at. And that just goes, that's, to me, that would be a mark of a true leader when you're honest about, like, hey, let me find somebody. This is their right. expertise. Absolutely. And this isn't making them the pastor, but this is a person that I know can give you the healing that you need. Absolutely. And, and it's so cool to see those that have went through some of, her, uh, of Sister Jennifer's programs. I mean, the progress that's happening in their life is incredible, okay? Um, but, again, the problem is is that if someone who's they've been, you've been hurt Okay, if I'm going to go through this process of healing, that means I got to open up about this. I got to open a closet that I've had shut for 14 years. I don't want to have to deal with that. And, and my encouragement to you is okay, recognize that yes, there are deep emotions that come out when you start opening that closet door. But the amazing thing is, is that over a process, and sometimes I've seen it after the second meeting, all of a sudden now I open that closet to talk about it. And I don't have that feeling of anxiety anymore. Where'd that go? Well, you just released some pressure that you've had inside there for so many years, you know. And and all of a sudden now they walk into church, and without even being prompted, their hands are in the air. There's more freedom to worship, you know, because you're not you, you're not living in defense anymore of yourself. You actually feel like you can open up, you know, you can receive the Holy Ghost. You know, that, that's, that's another whole deal of a lot of times the reason people struggle in living for God, it's not a spiritual thing. It's deep emotional things that, that they're having to deal with. And once they deal with it, man, God can do some amazing things in that. We asked somebody a question on a prior podcast that I'd like to ask you the exact same question okay. and get your opinion on. How do you get forgiveness from somebody who hasn't asked for forgiveness? How do you forgive someone that's yeah. never asked you? <laughs> that, that, that you can't get forgiveness from. Let, let me. I want to make sure because I, I think I got two different so answers. So say here. say say you hurt me. Yep. We'll say it like this: the person who abused you is dead now. Great. That's Perfect. where I was hoping That's you were was, going with this. Yeah. Yeah. How do I get? We had that. that. How do I close that? We had that. So um, there's two things you can do, and actually one of them I don't remember where I picked it up at. I, I've used it several times. The other one, um, actually Jennifer does this one, and a lot of counselors actually actually use this. It's a pretty common. Uh, it's a therapy technique. But um, the one that I did was I had them write me a letter. Write a letter to that person as if you were going to give it to them. And then give me the letter and then tell me if you want me to read it or not. I'm not going to read it just because you handed it to me. Okay? I had a lady who had been very abused by her father. He never, he never apologized one time, and he died. And she came to me, and her level of grief was so extreme, and it was not because she was grieving his death. She was grieving the death of the apology. Oh, she was holding out for it. 
She she was no, she recognized she was never going to get that apology. Okay, so she was waiting for that apology to forgive him. Well, I'll forgive him when he says I'm sorry. Well, we went through this process, and I said, tell you what, you write him a letter. Okay, I want you just to just pretend that he's asked you. I want you to write the letter as if he's pretended to ask you for the apology. She wrote the letter. She gives it to me. She says, please don't read it. I took it in there. I shredded it. Never read it. I have no idea what it said. I can tell you the next Sunday after that, when she walked in that door, she had a smile on her face. She felt a release. Um, writing things down is, is incredible. Now, I'll tell you the other one, the one that Jennifer uses. And again, a lot of counselors use this, and it's called the empty chair where you literally sit down, put an empty chair in front of you, and you pretend like that person is sitting in that chair, and you say whatever you need to say. I, I know of situations where the person ended up screaming because <laughs> there was so much anger pent up inside, but it had to get out. And once it got out, then the, then the person could be led through what it takes to actually forgive someone. Sure, I can I can give a, a very good example. I'm going to be open and transparent. I told Brian's the only person I've ever told this to. Now you're telling me. And I'm telling everybody. <laughs> but when my father-in-law, David Ramsey, passed away, um, everybody in the family was asked to put something, not of value financially, but something of value in there with him. It was like, uh, I forget what Mary put in there, but we put his Bible in there, mm-hmm. some preaching, no stuff like that. And... I had some heaviness on my heart from some stuff that I felt like I had done wrong towards my wife. And I was holding myself accountable to that. And I wrote that letter to David. Wow. And I apologized to my wife through her father in a letter. Wow. And I apologized to him for the way I was treating my wife. And I now, now let's get this straight. I wasn't abusing my wife. I wasn't doing anything <laughs> crazy like that. Yeah. But I wrote that and... That was a form of closure for me because Absolutely. whenever I got, whenever I asked David's permission to marry Meredith, mm-hmm. he said something funny. First of all, he said, are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> and then the second thing he said was, the only thing I ask you is you treat her right. I don't care about money. I don't care about your finances. Yep. I don't care about your knowledge. Treat her right. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I let David down by some of the thing, uh, some of my actions in our early years of marriage. Mm-hmm. And so, like, like you said, I wrote that letter. And from that, I felt that release. Now, I'd have apologized to my wife a million times. We've talked about it. We've got it out in the open. Mm-hmm. We actually um, sought, you know, some counseling for it. Mm-hmm. And, but through me apologizing to David mm-hmm. in a letter that he'll never know about, but you released, released it. it from myself. Yep. So I, I, we're on the same page. Absolutely, it, it works so well. So what's being said here is, if the people out there, if you're carrying shame in your life, there is a way to get healing from that shame. Absolutely. But it is going to take you getting into an uncomfortable situation. You have to, and that way you can position yourself for that healing. And in in the life, there are so many different things we're going to encounter that are going to put us in uncomfortable situations. And Brother Lovell, I'd like to ask you to speak to it. If you want to say another thing on this subject, or if you want to expand it to anything other, what's the value of being put into an uncomfortable situation? You can't grow unless you are. Um, I don't remember who said this. I'd love to take credit for it, but it wasn't me by any stretch of the imagination. I recently read, though, someone said, if you're going to become an expert... You have to face your weaknesses. You have to. You cannot, if I'm going to be great at anything. Let me put it this way. I heard a sermon one time that was, you'll never truly be Superman until you find out what your kryptonite is. Exactly. 
Exactly. And, and, and people who they fear, I, I mean, let me try to really get pinpoint down on this. I'm not sure so much that the people fear getting hurt again. They just dread those emotions that they're going to have to have before they can get past that wave. Because you've suppressed emotion for so long. It's like a big old pressure cooker inside of you that you just keep cramming stuff down into. Well, eventually, if you don't release that, it will come out on its own. It may come out as something targeted, you say, toward a loved one. It may come out in an action you do toward someone else. It's going to come out. It, but the thing is, the cool thing about forgiveness and the cool thing about dealing with your stuff is it comes out in a controlled way instead of a an explosive way, okay? It, and again, it goes That's back. powerful. I referenced that book you know, earlier, Hurt People, Hurt People. People don't just, I don't think anybody sets out, you know, wake up in the morning and say, I wonder who I can hurt today. You know, we just don't do that. And I don't, I don't ever want to give someone that, you know, reputation. But people don't realize how much they hurt people because they're hurting so much inside and they won't deal with it in, in, in the healthy ways. Okay. I want to clarify too what forgiveness is. I've, I've ran into this so much. People somehow get this idea that forgiveness is your way of telling someone, oh, don't worry about what you did to me. Or you're all good now. That's not what it is. You go back to the Old Testament, what was forgiveness? Forgiveness was letting go of your right to retaliate. That was, that was what forgiveness was in the Old Testament. You know, they had in the laws, they had the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If, if somebody killed your ox, you had the right to kill their ox. But forgiveness says, yeah, you killed my ox, but I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to get my hands bloody, so I'm going to give up my right. It was actually a legal transaction. You gave up your, you willingly gave back. And, and in, in some of those things, you actually had to do it at the city gate in front of the council. Like in front, you had to have witnesses of the council where you gave back your right to retaliate. You know, and, and so there's a little thing that I, I do with people. Um, you know, I usually carry a handkerchief in my, in my pocket or I'll, I'll, I'll find a napkin or something. And I'll tell them, I say, okay, on this napkin or on this handkerchief is the list of everything that person did to you. This is their guilty verdict right here. Do you agree that person's guilty? Well, yeah, they're guilty. Okay, so this also means that if we're Old Testament, you have the right to retaliate. The reality is, is that we're not Old Testament. Thank God. And and <laughs> there'd be a lot of dead people today if we were the Old Testament. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So, but let's use the the concept of forgiveness from the Old Testament. Okay. So I put that in their hand. I said, I want you to squeeze that with all of the anger you have towards that person. I'm telling you, I've seen people's hands go solid white. I mean, they squeeze the blood out of their own hand. Just that I've seen them shaken and just. Because all of a sudden they're channeling, follow me on this, they're channeling all that internal pressure they've had into one grip. And, and I'll have them think through it. You remember that time? You remember that time? I say, what are you doing to those people? You're, it, that's brutal. And say, okay, now I'm going to show you how to forgive them. What you're going to do now is you're going to tell the Lord, I see everything they did to me, but I'm choosing this day to release 
And I tell them, whenever you start praying and you get to the point where you feel like you can forgive them, just drop the hanky. Just just let it fall. Now, does that handkerchief feel anything in that moment? No. That handkerchief, it's not a living thing. It doesn't know if it's being gripped or being dropped. Okay? Who, who has the sensation of release in that moment? The person. The person that lets it go. Okay? I don't know if you all have heard this before, but refusing to forgive someone is like preparing a poisonous drink and drinking it yourself. You prepared it for them, but you drink it. Because they don't, they don't sense that emotion that you have. Okay? So in that moment there, when you release that thing and it falls, I cannot tell you how many times I've seen people just instantly uh, begin to pray in the Spirit. People that have never received the Holy Ghost before, it just, bam, it happens. Because they chose to forgive in that moment. Because let me remind you, you can't be more Christ-like than when you forgive. You don't have to have Christ to love people. Okay? Anybody can love people, but when you forgive someone, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Literally, he's dying on the cross. The people are killing him. He's dropping handkerchiefs <laughs> right there in that moment. Okay? I, I, want, I want to make sure that I'm lifting holy hands in the sanctuary. I want to make sure that my hands are clean. Okay? Well, there's so many people that forgiveness that they're refusing to give someone, it's because one hand is clenched and it's holding that list of stuff. So I tell people, hey, you know what? Make that list. I've actually had people write out on the piece of paper and take it in their hand. It wasn't the handkerchief. It was a piece of paper with everything listed on that. Okay, are you ready? Yeah, and they I pray with them, walk them through it. I say, when you're ready, don't drop. And I haven't. people haven't dropped it every time. There's some people who've stopped and said, I just can't do this right now. Okay, that's fine. We'll back off. But I, I want to commend you for how far you went today with it. You know, I want to celebrate the fact you even thought about forgiving. You know, and then once they get to that point where they release, I'm telling you, I, I had I had one man that his mother tried to sell him in the black market when he was four years old, and and, and then left his life, and then a couple years later died. The only thing he knew about his mom was that she tried to sell him, she hated him. And, and, I mean, you go on down that list there. I mean, here, here's a guy, a great man, inside. It's just hurting so bad. And the sad part about it was is that it did affect his marriage. You talked about the impact of marriage. Again, that, that pain that's on the inside, it's going to come out somewhere. And, and, the, and the, the, the fact, the reality is, is that it generally comes out on those that are closest to us. And it's better to release it in a controlled... In a very controlled environment. Mm. Yep. And, and I've had people have to go back and do it two or three times. <laughs> Have you ever had to hold one of those napkins? Oh, absolutely. That's how I know it works. Wow. So so when, when you're in Sykeston, I'm sorry, wh- my phone just vibrated because Tony's been texting everybody telling him this is probably one of the deepest podcasts <laughs> we've ever had. And, and so w- when you were there in, in that city, what was the what would you say is probably the lasting impact that either that you know you've left or you would have hoped that you have left since you had transitioned now? Wow. Um, so our motto there was hope, help, and healing. Everything we did have to either produce hope, produce help, or produce healing in someone's life. Okay. I was able to step back and see people living out that motto. But the beautiful thing about it was, 
is the people who were living out that motto of providing hope, providing help, and providing healing were people who came needing hope, needing help, and needing healing. And you see this cycle happening. And then all of a sudden, one of the greatest things I think anybody should know, you minister best out of your most pain. Your pain doesn't keep you from ministering. Okay, you take somebody who who's been raped. They end up forgiving the person. <laughs> I got to tell this story. Jennifer, her name. This is a different Jennifer. She's coming to church. Down at the altar, weeping, crying. Incredible, God filled her with the Holy Ghost. She come to me a couple weeks after that, and she said, "Wow, this is so real." She said, I could actually forgive him. I said, forgive who? She tells me this story about two weeks prior to that night, she had been raped at work. And the guy had put so much fear in there uh, of turning him, turning him in that she literally didn't tell anybody. She said, I, I think I actually forgive him. And I said, okay, well, the easiest way to know if you've forgiven someone is when you think of your name, do you feel hatred or do you feel a release? And she said, I actually prayed for him. Wow. I mean, that's that's what God can do when you use his process. I mean, literally, and what's amazing now is she's on the outreach team in Atlanta with the, in Court Chavis' church. Hmm. Her and her husband are doing a great work for God. And, and that's a young lady that she literally ministers to people out of her pain because when she's met people that have been raped, who, who can minister to that person best? Nobody better. Yeah. So I was going to ask you at one point, what do you think are three musts of a minister? And you may have a different uh, three musts, but I think what you just said, those are three powerful things. Have the ability to provide help to people, hope to people, and healing to people. So all of that, um, I'll give you another one that I think is, if you're going to be in the ministry, you have to be able to create understanding. That create understanding drives me okay if i'm teaching a bible study what good does it do for me to stand up there and rattle on for an hour if nobody gets it right okay all right so we can all see how that would work in the church the creating understanding of scripture what about creating an understanding that god really does love you create an understanding that you can be healed create understanding for people where they go wow i can be healed i can get through this our marriage can be saved that's understanding, okay? Well, as, as I don't care if you're a minister or just anyone, but especially if you're a minister, you have to be able to create understanding for people. I pray. That's part of my prayer every day. God, help me create understanding for people. It, it, it drives everything. Remember this. Nobody ever votes for something they don't understand. You just don't do that. Nobody embraces anything they don't understand. If there's something in Scripture that somebody's not lining up with, and they may say, I don't, I don't agree with it. I'm going to have to dig a little deeper than that. I think there's something they don't understand. That's right. And if you can create understanding, then they can better embrace the things that are in the, in the Word. So you have to start with why. You have to start with why. Simon Sinek, one of the greatest books ever. <laughs> Bro, I want to shift gears here. You have transitioned out of Sykeston as pastoral ship there, and you are now based in St. Louis out of headquarters under mm-hmm. a financial... Um, what is financial loan? You're getting there. Uh, 
spill uh, it out uh, to me. Okay. Just tell us about it. How, how okay. Does, how does I, uh, there's a question I want to ask you after you tell me what you do, and okay. I'm going to segue into another question. Just look at me when you're done with that answer. Okay, okay. <laughs> I wonder what the questions are. So, <laughs> so let's go back. When I was in Mountain Home, I was a youth leader, but I was also – I worked for a bank. Fifteen years, you know, started as a part-time teller, worked my way up. I was vice president, you know, commercial lending, branch manager, all that stuff. Then I was in Sykeston, pastoring, not banking. Um, when I was there, I started a company called Lead Strategies. I uh, provided leadership consulting, leadership training for manufacturing firms, Chamber of Commerce, city municipal- municipalities, uh, schools, <laughs> um, all of that kind of stuff. So I stayed in the business environment. I, I just I feel drawn to that business environment. All right. July 1st of this year, I transitioned to headquarters. I am now the assistant director of the stewardship department and the senior loan officer for the UPC loan fund. So now I went from banker to pastor to banker for pastors. Gotcha. (laughs) So here's my question I'm going to ask you. So you're a money guy. You're a numbers guy. You've been around it your whole life. What is the spiritual ramifications of giving in your tithing? and Oh, my goodness. Um, let 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 me stop right here before you start. And tell you, my dad's over here to my right, and <laughs> I gave my whole life because dad told me to. It w- it took Pastor two times of teaching a Blessed Life series for me to grasp onto something and finally realize the importance of giving. Okay, so how do I summarize this? Um, while, while you're thinking how to summarize it, let me hit you with a, <laughs> hit you with a, 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 a curveball here. Is it harder to preach winning souls to preachers or preaching giving in tithes and offering to saints? <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, harder? I'll I tell you what frustrates me more. What frustrates me more is preachers who aren't in to saving the lost. I, I would rather deal with church members who don't give tithes and offerings than deal with Preachers who won't get in the field. Mm. Uh oh. <laughs> you hit a button right there. That's you didn't know right you did. Oh, so we'll let's come back to the let's come back to that. One. I felt like he was wanting to sit down on that one for a second. <laughs> um, yeah, that down, so, I ripped yeah. a leg off my frog. Okay. Good night. <laughs> what is the spiritual ramifications of okay. giving and your tithing and offering? Um, and not to you when you're done because I got to. I'm gonna hit you real hard. Here. I'm gonna try to do two things. There are only there's only one place in the Bible, only one place, where God says, "Prove me." To the tithes and offerings. See if I won't. See if I won't bless you. Mm-hmm. The only thing that God says you can prove me on that one is when it comes to money. Now, when you look at the concept of tithes, okay, clearly in Scripture, it's ten percent. It's the first fruits. Okay. There is a promise. Huh? Net or gross? <laughs> Dad, net or gross? How many? <laughs> what'd you say? It's gross. It, it's it's gross. It's gross. So, right? Absolutely. I, I only hesitated because I've been in one of those conversations with some other pastors. Oh my goodness! It's like heaven or hell issue with people. So why would I give the government my first fruit if I don't pay on my gross? So here's how I answer that one. You don't have a choice of paying the government. Why not have the same mentality about God? Why not just have it automatically deducted? There's all those abilities with banking and finance. Just You don't even count it. So here, here's my deal on that. There is a promised blessing 
on the remaining 90%. Okay? So you're telling me I get to choose between having a blessed 90 or an unblessed 100. Wow. Okay, so here's... Uh, can I jump in real quick? You better hurry this Cause, up because I'm about to hit him hard. Because this one's <laughs> a really practical one. Do you tithe off of your tax returns? Yes. Okay. All right, so here, here's my curveball for you. You've told us how important it is to give. Well, you'd rather have a blessed 90 than an unblessed 100. What do you tell the person that says, I have nothing to give, nothing left to give? I'll put it that way. I have a personal financial budget sheet that I take people through. And I have them prove to me. Now, let me clarify. I, I was not the pastor who would sit down and look at people's check stubs to know if they were tithing right. I didn't do that. Um, I, I did the thing where I walked in there. Uh, yes, it was all computerized, but I also had my secretary. She wrote out the tithing rolls. I would take that book without going through it and without seeing who gave what. I would lift that book up and say, Lord, according to your giving, bless them. Okay? I would make sure I prayed a blessing on their, on their giving. Okay? Um, when people would tell me they don't have money to give, I would say, show me you don't. Let, let's do a personal financial statement. Let's do a budget. Everydollar.com. <laughs> Let, let's, let's do a budget. It's not difficult here. Okay? It, because what I really wanted to check was where was their heart? Mm. Did they really want to give and couldn't? Or they were looking for a reason to not give. Okay? And, and I'm telling you, it, here's the crazy thing. I, I'm remembering three specific scenarios where some ladies came to me telling me they could not give. They didn't have anything left to give. And when I sit down with them and I understood their situation, <laughs> the crazy thing was is they actually walked out with checks. <laughs> I actually gave them money. Okay? Because it was clearly a situation of a widow or an orphan or a single mom who was, I mean, clearly they're scriptural for supporting them, okay? Um, but I knew their heart. And I knew as soon as a, maybe it was medication they had to buy for their kids, it was something. And when I knew they weren't just blowing their money, you know, the one that always got me is when people said, you know, Pastor, I, you know, we're really running tight this month. And then all of a sudden in three weeks, you see pictures from Silver Dollar City. Mm-hmm. We got a problem here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's a heart issue. And that's where when you talk about where the spiritual, spiritual ramifications you can see what's really in people's hearts by by just you know your checkbook proves it. How are you how are you spending your money? Where are you putting your priorities at? Um, you know, so again, if somebody tells me they just don't have money to give, I want to I want to help them see how are you using all of your money. You know, it, it might be something where all of a sudden you don't have money to give. Well, it's because you went out here and and yes, the banker told you you could afford that car, but the reality is you should have bought one half that price. And that NFL Sunday ticket all of a sudden become <laughs> important. You had to go there, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, the gym memberships, the, yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, there's – I'm completely on board with you. It's not a money issue. It's a heart issue. Mm-hmm. It really is because there's times in, in my personal life where when I was younger I thought – my wants was my needs. Mm. And now that I have a daughter and a wife, mm. all of a sudden yep. my priorities are a little different now. Yep. You know? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I, everybody has something they're going to spend their money on. Everybody has something. Man, Brian likes that Popeye's. Hey, um, <laughs> you know, I like bass fishing. 
I, I, I do. Um, but I have to manage it. You know, if, if I don't have money, if I don't have money to give in the offering, but I have money to go to Bass Pro, we got a problem. Let, let me ask you this, from a pastoral perspective, how do you prioritize uh, where the money goes in the church? Wow, these are deep questions here. They're crucial questions. They are, crucial conversations. <laughs> should be the name of this thing. Um, I, I'll give you a scenario. Okay. That first year, okay, first two years, um, I can talk about it now. <laughs> um, so I, I hesitate to tell this story because I don't want it to look like this is not about me. This is about how God works. Okay. I went from the corner office at the bank to the second year we were there, we were on food stamps. Mm. You talk about a pride check. I could not use that EBT card <laughs> for us. So I, I just, I, maybe it was a pride issue. Um, and I, I was determined this, we we're going to turn this church around. And we started teaching home Bible studies, and I had my wife use that card to pay for the food that she bought to cook for the people who attended our home Bible studies. <laughs> okay? All of a sudden, things start turning around. There was one particular month. I remember we, we obviously we lived in Arkansas. Everybody in Arkansas knows October 10th. <laughs> it's your taxes. Taxes due. We still owned a home here. I had zero money. There was zero money in the church uh, ministry account. I probably could have approached the board to see if I could get some somewhere. Else. I just couldn't do it. I had three banks in town told me I was overqualified for a job and wouldn't hire me. I was trying to get a job. I needed $700. I went in there at the altar, got a yellow sticky note, and I wrote $700 on it. I laid it on the altar, and I said, God, I've lived off this statement before. I'm going to live off it again. If it's your will, it's your bill. You know I need to pay this, and the only reason I have this due, frankly, is because of this move. Because if we were still back in Arkansas, I could have paid that. Right? Here we are, getting a food stamp check, I was out of money. With That was a Tuesday. Phone started ringing. Friday night, preached a Section 9 youth rally. Sunday morning, preached at a different church. Sunday night, preached at a different church. Those three checks added up to $700. Don't tell me God won't do it. Yeah, wow. <laughs> okay? That's those moments where you say, Oh, okay, I can handle some struggle. Because even in our struggle, God was right there with us. You know, and, and, and it's, it's about where is your heart in all this? My wife's going to kill me here, but I don't care. <laughs> so I told my dad yesterday, me and him was over at Walmart. We were just talking about just ministry, honestly. And I, I began to talk to him about the Blessed Life series and how that changed my life. And or not changed my life, but changed how I perceived uh, how to give. And I remember one Sunday service, my wife and I, we were strapped. We really were like we couldn't, 
when our bills was we made so we made a certain amount of dollars a month and it came out to be a certain amount of dollars we owed every month i mean yeah. we were living paycheck to paycheck and god laid it upon my heart to take on a missionary and our pastor was i want to come back to that when you get through through sure my pastor does this thing where it's like almost like he's auctioning off missionaries like mm-hmm. we've got these people who's gonna take them on for some reason i slipped up my hand i don't know why i did mm-hmm. but i did it and my wife looked at me and said, where's that money going to come from? I said, I don't know. Because mm-hmm. my wife deals with She texts me all the time. I'm stressed about these finances. I don't know what mm-hmm. we're going to do. But it wasn't until that situation, I believe it was that following Monday, I got a promotion to management at FedEx. And a man came up to me after I had prayed with our pastor. And he said, because of your willingness, God's going to bless you. It was that very next day wow. that I got that promotion from management. Wow. And this is what's crazy. We, we hear all these stories about how God put that check in the mail and I got it in my mailbox. And we've all heard those stories, bro. It wasn't until I did that. Yep. I went to the mailbox <laughs> and I opened my mailbox and I found a check in the mail. I mean, this has never happened to me, Wow. but I found this check <laughs> in this mail. We're building somebody's faith right now. I opened that check and it was was to the penny what we needed for a certain bill because I decided to take on that missionary. Well, wow, yeah. I believe that. So yeah, Melissa, y- she had given in an offering. I don't remember what it was for, but she gave, and I don't remember what it was, but it was more than she had to give. It was before we got married. She went home that weekend because she's from the Whitehall Church, and so she went to their church. A lady in that church came up to her. It was right after she graduated college and said, hey, it, it was right after. It was months since she had graduated, and they said, hey, I haven't had a chance to see you. They gave her a check for the exact amount she wrote out to give in that offering and they were like hey we've missed this to give it to you on your graduation and it was the exact that's amount when that you fly gets. back to Jonesboro put that check in the bag <laughs> <laughs> so you ask about prioritizing church funds okay in that time frame um money was pretty low at the church um secretary came to me one day explained everything and she said if I give you your check um, which she said, I want to give you your check. Which one of our missionaries do you want me to cut? I said, you ain't cutting a missionary. She said, well, I can't give you this check. <laughs> uh-uh. I ain't taking money out of the field. <laughs> There's no way. You're not cutting them. And I never once cut the missions giving. That church is, God bless that church so much. I, they're now, I don't even know how many missionaries. There's probably... 15 to 20 missionaries now, you know, it supports. Um, it, to me, that 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 moment right there, that's hard. I ain't going to lie. Because when you got to go home and explain that to the wife, <laughs> yeah, that's deep, you know. But how God blessed from that, oh, my goodness. It's unbelievable. It, it truly is. You cannot give out God. You cannot outgive God. Again, it goes back to he literally said, prove me. Yeah. See if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out. But you know how big heaven's windows are? Mm. <laughs> so I was gonna, we were going to ask you a question about how can a minister invest in his future. And, and of course, I w- we were going to ask that with the idea of how can they financially kind of set themselves up for retirement and things like that. But I'd like to change it because you said you, know, you wanted the money to go to the missionary. One thing I've noticed about you, Brother Lovell, in, in the short time that I've been able to be around you, is you invest in people. 
tonight, today I came to, to talk to you uh, to find out if you were going to be going to eat before the podcast, and, and you were talking with some young men about what they can do uh, to find a job when they go off to college. And, and I've, I've seen you uh, work the altars praying for young people. Uh, talk to us about the importance of investing in somebody's life. A lot of people have varied definitions of the word ministry. If you take it back to the original root word, and you understand that both in Hebrew and Greek, it's all those languages, they're built on layers. It all starts with a root, okay? The very root of the word ministry means to contribute to to contribute to the growth of someone, to contribute to the need of someone. to It's a constant giving of something that betters someone else. You are not ministering unless you are contributing to someone else's betterment. Okay? So take that. Now then i gotta, I got to add this in here. Okay, that 2010, day two, mm-hmm. the message was called Go Mad. Go Make a Difference. It's my life motto. I have T-shirts to say that. I have a hat that says that. I mean, it's just that's my life motto. In everything you do, it's corny, but I say in a world that's going crazy, live to go mad. Okay, you got to make a difference. Every single person you encounter is an opportunity for ministry. You don't have to be called to ministry to do that. You got to be a human. Okay, every single day is a day to go mad. Go make a difference in someone else's life. I don't think there's a greater sense of fulfillment than knowing you have contributed to someone else's success, someone else doing better, someone else getting better, someone else achieving more, a team growing, a team producing. You know, my my greatest joy from Sykes to nine years of it, I can't point to one single thing or any, maybe even any series of things, but it's the overall picture of seeing this this group of people collectively doing so much better, okay? You can't, you can't make a difference in someone's life if you're not in their life, okay? That comes from, from Jude one twenty two. And if some have compassion making a difference, there's got to be a level of compassion there, okay? Right around that same verse, it talks about um, pulling people out of the fire. You, you got to get in there where life is happening at, you know? It's the old cliche of, you know, Jesus wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. You know, you got to get right there in people's world where they're living at and then somehow let God help you contribute to them doing better. So everything with me is about investing in others. I don't care. I don't care what it is. So Brother Lovell, we're, we're going to be wrapping up here pretty quickly, but um, we always end with two segments. The segments are what are you reading? What do you suggest? We've named a, quite a few here, but we'll let you elaborate on that a little bit. We'll also give you a chance for a final word to speak into somebody's life. Okay. Uh, before we do that, the last thing I want you to talk about is you went through a traumatic emotional event with your son. Oh, my goodness. I want you to tell that story real quick. Um, I was preaching a tent revival in Osceola, Arkansas. It was a Friday night, uh, April 28th, 2017. Um, towards the end of the message, um, the Lord spoke to me 
and I, in the microphone, said, somebody here or somebody on this property is going to die, but God is going to raise them back to life. I got to admit, in my mind, I'm thinking it was going to happen on that property. That was Friday night, about 8 o'clock. Saturday at 12.04, me, my wife, my mom, my dad, my cousin, his wife, um, two neighbors, and my son, and my cousin's two kids, nine of us watched my then eight-year-old son get hit by a car. We watched him fly over 50 feet down the street, like in the air, tumbling. Um, The most traumatic one second or two seconds of my life that you could ever imagine. There's, you cannot shake the sound of a car hitting a child. There's just, you just can't shake that. I mean, it's been two years, and I still I get cold chills thinking about it. Um, his head, the back of his head, crushed the front grill of the car. Um, there was a bruise from his sternum all the way around his arms, all the way to his back, the center of his back, where the bumper literally caved him in completely. Um. My, my cousin, who is a 20-year veteran fireman, EMT, was standing right there when it happened and jumped on him. And by the time when I ran toward him, um, my cousin looked at me and he said, I'll never forget that look on his face. He, just, he, was, he was white as a ghost. I remember him being white as a ghost because in that moment, everything goes slow motion. You know, as fast as it's happening, it was like the most ultimate slow motion event of my life. And he said, there's no pulse. And my son was laying there. I mean, he had the dead eyes, you know, wide open, no breath, nothing. And I, I remember I, I, had, I said four statements. I rebuke death. I bind death. I command life. I speak life. I don't know why it came out that way. Were you holding on to what God gave you the night before, or did you just I, it, That wasn't even in it. my mind. wasn't even in my mind. Um, I, I, so my face was like an inch from his on the ground. I was right in his face. And he set up and said, what happened? Um, <laughs> you can call it whatever you want. I know what happened right there. Um, he had quite a bit of road rash on his face from when his face hit the pavement. I have a picture that shows where the car came to a stop. The car was going at least 30 miles an hour. She wouldn't admit how fast she was going. Um, she, We know she had her phone in her hand, and she never saw him. So she wouldn't admit that she was on her phone, but... No um, slowing down at th- all. No slowing down. There was no brakes. There was no screeching of the tires. Um, it was nothing but thump. Then you heard the, the, the tires. Um, at least 30 miles an hour, and, and he flew. So the police report... Um, the policeman even accused me of moving the body because he said there's no way with his injuries and the bruise and his head, there's no way he, he went from there to there. He had to be under the car. And we're, we're trying, he wasn't, there was nine witnesses that said, no, we watched him fly through the air. Um, a, a doctor at the emergency room, um, his, he was bleeding quite a bit from his face from where he hit the pavement, so they, they took him in. And the doctor there uh, 
uh, I won't I won't call what religion he was, but it's a world religion. And he he said he said, "How is your son alive?" And I said, "Well, we prayed for him, and he got up." And he said, "I don't believe in that." Well, after he did a CAT scan, <laughs> and and after he did all the X-rays, he came back and he said, "the the bruises do not match the bones. There's no bones broken." He said, "You can't get this bruise without broken bones." And he started touching my son, pushing in, and and Parker's like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> you know, like he's kind of you know. And the guy's like, you have to be broken. He kept saying that you have to be broken. And finally, he, he got done and he said, well, clearly there's a higher power at work here. Wow. Yeah. I mean, God showed himself in that moment right there. Um, even though you know Parker survived, as wonderful as that is, there's something about th- those, those two seconds or however many seconds it was of trauma. I would, I would not wish that moment on any human on this planet. I don't care. I, I, don't, I don't, as far as I know, I don't have any enemies. If I did, I wouldn't wish that moment on them. It is the most gut-wrenching, helpless feeling of watching your son fly through the air. Like, it's just, it, it's so traumatic. Now, there was a really cool thing that happened, though. The neighbor across the street, when we all sat down, we were finally talking about it, she said, well, I got to ask you a question. She said, what were you saying? And so I told her those four things. She said, no, 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 before that, what were you saying? I said, I don't remember saying anything. She said, when, when you took off running, you were screaming in some weird language. I have, I have no memory of it. Wow. And then the other person, there was another person, she said, yeah, you were, you were screaming in tongues all the way over Bro, there. You were praying in the Holy Ghost. Now, this is what I tell people. You better be so full of the Holy Ghost at any moment of time that it can kick in the gear without you even realizing it. Because that's what happened. That was not Rick Lovell. That was the Holy Ghost right there. Wow, I don't even want to go <laughs> on from that. But I got to ask you, man, what is... I'm having a hard time moving on. But anyway, what what is some suggested, recommended reading that you're doing or that you have done that you would really push on somebody you know that wants to go on from where some of the conversations we've had today uh leadership pain that that and and i apologize i don't remember all the authors of books that's fine leadership pain absolutely it'll mess you up but it'll take you where you need to go um you i've You've probably had this one already discussed on here, but A Tale of Three Kings. So I just finished reading <laughs> that. My dad times. just finished reading that. My pastor just finished. We've had, I don't know, three or four <laughs> people who recommended it. Y'all, Everybody has. the fact that David could have thrown the spear back. Bro, oh my word. That's exactly what I just got done talking to Brother Etheridge on his yes. podcast about. Yes. They said he could either throw it back and be an excellent marksman, but he'd be very angry. Oh, that, I mean. That, that hit me right there. Yeah, that book, absolute. Oh. I don't ministry or not. If you're a human, you need to read that book. Um, wow, that is. I'll so tell you another one that really helped me. It, this is, I mean, this is a, a just a regular business book, but it's called "Turn the Ship Around" by David Marquette. Um, incredible story of how he he was uh, promoted to uh, be admiral of a of a submarine in the U.S. Navy that was the worst rated submarine in the fleet. And he had been told that he had uh, 24 months 
to literally turn the ship around or they would decommission it and put it out of commission and everybody else would you know, get reassigned. And in 18 months, that submarine won the war games. I mean, he wow. literally went from last to first. And when, when he talks about in there, he had to get so much permission from the Pentagon to change the style of leadership, the culture of leadership, all of that stuff. It's an incredible read. Um, I, I recommend it for everybody, but especially if you are a a manager, a pastor, anybody who you're in a situation that you, you need to drastically change the course, no pun intended here, but you need to drastically change the course that that particular entity is in. If it's a church, it's a business, I don't care what it is, your family, you know, you need to read that book and use the principles he used awesome. to literally turn the ship around. Bro, we've talked about quite a bit of few things. Brian didn't mean to cut you off. We've talked about quite a few things, and Brian and I greatly appreciate you taking time to sit down with us in between uh, you teaching seminars and you got a meeting here in a couple minutes, and you're a very busy man, but we'd like to say we appreciate you coming on the podcast with us. Uh, so uh, before we give you the, the opportunity for your final word, uh, um, how does someone get in contact with you because of the, the position that you're in the, the, with the United Pentecostal Church? And what kind of services can you offer them? And if you want, I don't, I'm not sure if we really got into it. How did you uh, get from being the pastor to being where you are? So Brother Steve Jury is the director of the stewardship department. Years ago, he pastored in Arkansas, and he and I had met then. He and I had worked on a couple of the things um, once he got up there with the UPC Foundation, he helped me start an endowment fund called Wells of Life. Um, you know, we've done now 16 wells for missionaries around the world. So I'd worked with him on that, and he was familiar with my background. He knew, he'd got to know me pretty well. And so, you know, they invited me to, to come interview and, and come on board with it. So it was through relationships that I had built uh, before and, and them knowing, you know, my background, my education, those kind of things. Um, to get in contact with me, uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking to start saving money, um, with the United Pentecostal Church Loan Fund, we have, um, we have an account. It's called a demand certificate. Uh, at a local bank, it would probably be called a money market account or something like that, um, that you can open up with $250 a month and you know, start investing. Right now, today, it's paying 2.5%. That beats uh, local banks, beats the banks half a percent, absolutely. Um, if you have a little bit more money, you, know, you want to go more long-term, we do have uh, uh, investment certificates, much like CDs at a bank. Um, we can talk about that. If you are a minister that's looking to start a retirement fund, um, although that's not our department, uh, we do um, work closely with the minister retirement fund um, and, and helping a lot of that. My whole point is, is, is whoever you are, wherever you are, start saving money somehow. <laughs> create some kind of a plan, and I would definitely be glad to help with that. If there's a pastor who's needing to uh, uh, buy property, build you know, build a, a, a new facility, remodel, whatever, looking at a church loan, um, I'd love to talk to you about it. Um, the church loan fund right now is about $56 million in assets. Um, I'm happy to tell you that that is actually larger than a couple banks in Arkansas. <laughs> um, we're, we're on the map now, um, you know, on, on track to do, do great with that. Um, you know, you can call me at United Pentecostal Church headquarters. Just ask for me, or uh, I'll give you my email on here. Um, it's rlovell at upci.org. That's R-L-O-V-A-L-L. Not E. Right. It's an A uh, with at upci.org, and, you know, I'd be happy to uh, work through any of this. So you have transitioned from being a pastor. Mm -hmm. I saw something recently you put on Facebook. i got to ask you real quick. Now that you are you have the ability to, to say what you've been feeling what can a saint do to make pastoring easier? 
submit to the the vision, submit to the leadership. Um, and by that, I don't mean just be a yes man. I don't mean that. Um, I mean communicate with your pastor, how can I help fulfill God's vision for this church, and then just be faithful to it. Faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness. Be dependable. <laughs> you know, you don't ever want to be the person where the pastor says, I wonder if they're going to be here today. No, you're going to be there. Um, faithfulness is the biggest key that would I believe would help um, if you want to just narrow it down to one thing. So, Brother Lovell, like we said, we greatly appreciate you sitting down with us. Final words here. Give us what's on your heartbeat right now. What is, what's been your passion here lately? Um, a lot of transition. And, and it's not just for me. Um, I see the Lord, as, as you know, I'm, I mean, I work with all across the United States. And so I'm now getting a perspective that's a lot bigger than just Sykes in Missouri. Okay. I've been in Idaho, I've been in uh, East Tennessee, I've been in Ohio, Louisiana, South Texas. I've been all these places working with pastors from all over. And it is so clear to me that God is taking the church to a new level. And if it's not happening in your church, <laughs> whatever it takes to get in line with what God's doing, you need to do it. Because I, I, see, I see God opening doors in so many communities and it's all about a transition. He's taken the church to a new level. Well, if he's taken the church to a new level, that means he's taken everybody in the church to a new level. So my, my, my advice is whatever's been holding you back or whatever excuses that you've been using to not fulfill the will of God in your life, please work on that. Get through that. Get over that. Because God is wanting to take every single one of us to a new level. He's wanting to take us beyond anything we've ever imagined before. Have us, everybody, ministering in ways we've never imagined before. And, and all he's waiting on is us. The devil is not the reason it's not happening. We are. Um, we, we've heard that at the conference this weekend. We've heard that so much. But I've seen that across the nation right now. There is a major move of the Holy Ghost right now. There's a holy flow that's in our nation right now. And and it to me, it goes back to the scripture, you know, where sin abounds, grace, grace does much more abound. Clearly, our nation is in need, okay? The need is here. The answer's here. And we all have that answer. We all need to go to the next level. Quit living behind our excuses. Quit hiding behind our hurts. Let's get the help we need. Let's forgive where we need to forgive. Let's all take one step forward. If everybody just took one step forward, can you imagine the overall outcome of that? It'd be incredible for everybody. Bro, I'm going to end it by saying this. It's time to stop praying for revival and start living in Just it. Just be it. Yeah, live in it. That's exactly where we are. Well, with that, I know we, we had told the listeners we were going to get back into a situation when we talked about people getting out and, and winning, winning the lost and winning souls. I think a lot of what you just said is relatable to that, of getting out there and being what you're supposed to be and doing what you're supposed to do and taking that step of being able to connect with somebody. Just live it wherever you're at. Live in your moment. Quit thinking that it's somewhere else, that, that the call of God is in some other state, some other Just live it where you're at, and you're going to see God work. I have to say my biggest takeaway from today, and, of course, we have so much stuff to take away, but one thing that really stood out to me, I wanted to write it down, is when you told the story of the doctor as he was poking on your son, <laughs> and he said, you have to be broken. Yes. We've talked about a lot of stuff tonight, and there's a lot of people out there that have been listening that have bruises, and people come by 
since you've been in church and since you've been connected with God, and they poke on your bruise and they say, this just doesn't make sense. What you've gone through, it had to break you. You have to be broken. And you don't have to be broken. You don't have There to. is a place of healing. There if is. there's nothing else that you got out of this, when there's so much material today, know that if you have a bruise and you have a break in you, you can have a healing for that. Sure and can. people won't understand that. There'll be people that say, why is it? You have to be broken, and your answer can be the same as what that doctor came to the conclusion. There's something that God there's has done. There's a higher done. power at work here. Yep. There's a higher power at work. Mama. Thank you for listening to The Crucial Conversation.